Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we are delighted to welcome John W. Rogers Jr., the founder, chairman, co-CEO, and chief investment officer of Ariel Investments. John has been recognized by various media outlets for his investment acumen, including being selected as co-mutual fund manager of the year by Sylvia Porter's personal finance and an all-star mutual fund manager by USA Today. He has also been highlighted alongside legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Sir John Templeton, and Benjamin Graham in the distinguished book, The World's 99 Greatest Investors by Magnus Angenfeldt. John is an incredibly purpose-driven leader, having founded the very first black-owned mutual fund firm in the U.S. And if that's not enough, he served on multiple boards for companies like McDonald's and Nike, and on many nonprofit boards, including former President Barack Obama's foundation. We had a brief 30-minute interview today, and it is jam-packed with rich insights. We covered many topics, including John's story, how we can address the racial wealth gap in America, and how to be successful launching your own fund. I cannot wait for you to hear John's wisdom and hope that you found it as impactful as our team did. And without further delay, we bring you John Rogers. John Rogers, it is such a pleasure to have you today on the Investing in Integrity podcast, sir. First and foremost, how are you and where are you calling in from? I'm I'm doing fine, you know. Except the stock market volatility has added a lot of stress to the the week these days. But I'm home in Chicago on the way to the office this afternoon. Yeah, gosh, all the investors that I've been talking to have felt the pain. It's crazy to see a market like this. I'm sure most folks haven't seen a, a market like this in their lifetime. And what I'm hearing from everyone is that they're not sure how to move forward. But I, I have no doubt you and your firm are are well positioned uh, against your competitive set, just given your leadership and your your past performance. With that, I would love to dive right in. I have so many questions, and you know, with only 30 minutes, we'll barely scratch the surface on all the insights you you have to share with our audience. Our investor audience, our students, and our members at Scholars of Finance have been so excited to hear from you. You have an incredibly interesting background. If you could just start by giving us the quick 60 seconds on your story and background to, to anchor everyone, that'd be a great place to kick off. Well, thank you. I grew up in Hyde Park here in Chicago, and I had uh, two pioneering parents. My dad was a Tuskegee Airman and flew over 100 missions in World War II. And my mom was the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School in 1946. Her father was a pioneering lawyer, and her grandfather had a, the largest Black-owned hotel in the nation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that got burned down in the uh, race riots and the race massacre over a little over 100 years ago. So I grew up in this uh, sort of great University of Chicago community in Hyde Park, uh, played basketball in high school, and then went off to Princeton and played basketball there. Uh, the stock market was my other hobby. My dad had bought stocks for me every birthday and every Christmas after I was 12. And I just fell in love with the stock market. And uh, Coach Carell made it clear I didn't have a future in basketball. So I was lucky I had a, a, a second passion that I could rely on. <laughs> so that's sort of my, 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 my background. And 
I started at William Blair and spent two and a half years there as a stockbroker or financial advisor uh, before starting Ariel in, in 1983. I appreciate you sharing the pioneering lineage that you come from. And I'm sure your parents uh, must have been so proud of you uh, throughout your life, watching you pioneer as well and in the ways that you have. You've actually talked before about the childhood dinner table conversations with your dad, who you mentioned was a former Tuskegee Airmen and how they shaped your worldview and your professional path. Could you take us back in time to one of those dinner table conversations and tell us a bit more about the role they played in your life? My dad was just wanting me exposed to everything. And he realized that I seemed to click when he brought up the idea of the stock market and discussion. So every weekend when I go to visit my dad, he would have his newsletters laid out on my desk encouraging me strongly to read the Kiplinger's letters and the other newsletters that he was subscribing to and reading the annual, annual reports of the companies that he had invested in for me. So those are really, you know, formative conversations that were really important. And I started subscribing to newsletters on my own, started doing my own research for, for new companies to buy with my own savings that I had for my summer job. And then the final thing he did for me, which was beside the dinner table conversation, he set me up with his stockbroker. Stacy Adams, who was an African-American pioneer on LaSalle Street here in Chicago. And I would go and sit with Stacy and just watch the ticker tape go by. And he was my mentor, my role model, and taught me so much. Uh, and my dad really set that up. Thank you, Dad, so much for, for shaping John the way you have. We're all very grateful. John, your career has been wide ranging and so impressive, including you founding the first black owned asset management firm in the United States. Curious to hear what have been a couple of important milestones or inflection points in your career along the way. Well, I think when it comes to the aerial investments, which, uh, you know, again, we're, we're, we'll be 40 years old this January. It's like crazy how, how time flies. But the inflection points, I think the, the key one, first one was the 1987 crash. As you know, many of your listeners are too young to remember it, but the uh, stock market, you know, went down 22% in one day and there was a lot of fear. And I can remember I was at my wedding planner, uh, planning my uh, wedding to my, my wife, Desiree, and my fiance at the time. And anyway, we were calling clients saying, send us more money. This is a once in a lifetime chance to buy bargains. And the fact that we use that as an opportunity to buy bargains, that stock market crash of 87 set up a really nice recovery for us. And in 1988, we were one of the top performing managers in the country. Sylvia Porter's magazine uh, announced that I was co-mutual fund manager of the year, which was you know, quite an accolade. And that was really, I think, an important inflection point. You know, the other inflection points, maybe two others that are relevant. One was the the first opportunity to go on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. You know, that was the Friday night show that was must-see for everyone in the investment world. This was before CNBC and you know, daily uh, stock market shows. And to be there, it was kind of like being the comedian and going on Johnny Carson. It was one of those make-or-break opportunities for people to either have confidence in you or not. So that opportunity that uh, Lou Rukeyser gave me was another inflection point. And then finally, the 08-09 crisis. That stock market crash was brutal for us at Ariel. Uh, we had disappointed customers uh, during that period, didn't perform well. And it was another one of those tests whether we would stick to our discipline to being true value investors and buy bargains uh, while the opportunity was there. And we did that. And, and, and like 87, we got some great, great stocks at, at really 
bottom prices, and they did really well coming out of the crisis. We ended up being one of the top performers coming out of the uh, 08 and 09 financial crisis. And I think it gave people confidence that we would stick to our disciplines even when we were under immense pressure, losing assets and losing confidence in some folks. That was a true inflection point. Not only our listeners, but I, I wasn't even alive yet during the 87 crash. So you having, you know, a long view of history or at least, you know, relatively long view of history compared to our students and, and early career professionals who listen is incredibly helpful to hear because when we look at the market environment right now, even just yesterday, all the major indices dropping two to, you know, four percentage points, maybe there's a lesson here for everyone listening that now is the time to a stick to your principles and a long-term view and, and B, try to make the most of it in a difficult time. And that over time, performance can can recoup. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. And I really think that segues into my next question. What inspired you to start Aerial Investments? And I'm curious also, what have been some of the biggest challenges growing Aerial into the largest minority-owned investment firm in the U.S.? Well, I should say, you know, we really are uh, not the largest in, in investment firm exactly. We're the largest mutual fund company that's African-American owned. Robert Smith with his private equity firm is probably the biggest financial services company. You know, the inspiration to start the company was probably threefold. I think first and foremost, I had an investment strategy and philosophy that I believed in deeply and I thought would work and we would be able to outperform our peers and outperform in the broad market because back in 1980. Three, there were there were no Russell small value indexes, the mid value indexes, and all the unique little niches. You were out to try to outperform the market, and so the idea of being a value manager in small and mid sized companies, with kind of a Warren Buffett approach to those companies, there were very few people doing that back in 1983. So the idea of sort of being one of the early pioneers in small and mid cap value with the Buffett approach uh, was really exciting, and I really believed it would work. The second thing was this idea of being the first African-American money management and mutual fund company in the country's history. It was also something that was quite exciting for me. There were some role models in Chicago who had built businesses at a young age. John Johnson with uh, Ebony and Jet Magazine, first African-American to be on the Forbes 400. George Johnson, who created Johnson Products, they made Afrosheen and Ultrasheen hair care products. He was the first African-American ever to be on, listed on a major stock exchange. So seeing these pioneers in my hometown that had you know, made history by starting at a young age in a field that they, that they believed deeply in, whether it was publishing for John Johnson or hair care for George Johnson, I said, maybe I can do something similar in money management and mutual funds. And uh, you know, with my you know, unique experience um, that my dad had given for me, gave me a lot of confidence that that, that would work. And you know, the only other thing that I would add was that I wanted to do something special with my life. I felt like, I, as we talked about earlier, I had these pioneering parents and family members, and I think I felt the challenge to want to make sure that hopefully I could make a difference and do something special and have an impact. And I think that was uh, the sort of the third component there. Thanks, John. I appreciate you sharing your threefold motivation for starting it. You mentioned the 87 crash. You mentioned 0809. I'm curious, what were some of the other biggest challenges that you faced growing aerial investments into what it is today? You know, the challenges have been, I think that well-meaning progressive companies, uh, when they think about working with minority companies, they think about it in terms of this term supplier diversity. And that's typically starts with construction, sometimes catering, janitorial services, office products. 
often very low margin commodity parts of the spend. And as you know well, the wealth and jobs in today's economy come through financial services, professional services, and technology. Maybe add media to that. So whether it's unconscious bias or implicit bias, the challenge has been when, when we go to see prospects and think, ask them to think about adding our mutual funds to their 401k or having us manage part of an endowment, often the CFO or the CEO just has never thought about using a minority firm to do that kind of work. Like here in Chicago, for example, the University of Chicago works with now over 100 professional services firms and technology firms, 15 money managers for the endowment, DePaul, Loyola, Roosevelt, Columbia, IIT, do virtually nothing. And so that's that challenge is that you would think the progressive institutions who care about the wealth gap in America would want to work with minority businesses in everything we do, but too often they just telescope us toward the low margin opportunities. And we've got to work to try to transition and transform that. I think that's been probably our biggest challenge. It continues to plague us, but we're making progress. I have to say the final part to you know, end on, on a good note is that you know, we have some progressive political leaders that are out there pushing and talking about this, some thought leaders that are out there pushing and talking about this, and it's actually been enhanced since the horrific murder of George Floyd. More and more institutions are starting to open up and, and be more thoughtful. And so I'm optimistic about the future. I appreciate you sharing. And John, what you've shared now you know, about the racial wealth gap actually segues directly into the next question I was hoping to ask. I want to shift topics a bit into racial inequalities in wealth and and finance. Um, With Juneteenth and Pride Month, there's been renewed attention around the racial wealth gap in America, including the intersectional disparities of wealth in BIPOC communities, especially for Black women. What are the most important ways, in your opinion, that financial services firms can help close that racial wealth gap? Financial services firms can do it in in many ways. I think uh, I would just give you a couple of highlights. Number one, I had the chance to chair President Obama's Council on Financial Capability for Young Americans. And the recommendation we gave to the president was we were hoping to see financial services companies partner with urban public schools and not only teach young people of color about the stock market and investing, but also have their analysts engaging with the young people so that they would see all the various financial services career opportunities that are out there. So we think, number one, financial services companies need to work more closely with local public schools and urban communities. Because if you think about it, if you're more financially literate, you're going to not only save better, you're also going to be more likely to be a successful entrepreneur. You're going to be able to take those challenges on because you've been prepared growing up to do so. The second thing is that financial service firms need to do business with financial, with minority-owned financial firms. Big banks hire uh, money managers to help them manage their pension plans or their 401k plans. They use um, all types of uh, professional services, financial services firms day to day. So using minority-owned firms will help to build stronger minority-owned companies, which will create more role models of success. And uh, that will help make a dent in this wealth gap. And then finally, of course, the financial services companies have to have more and more minorities and African-Americans on their management committees in the boardroom, in the leadership roles, uh, not only helping to set policy, but again, be a role model for next generation leaders. I always give an example here in Chicago, uh, the CFO of Northern Trust, Jason Tyler, is a dynamic 
African-American businessman. We were speaking to 50 college students yesterday at the Northern. The two of us did a panel together. People want to are inspired by Jason. They want to grow up and, and, and be like Jason. So we have to have more of those what I call pied pipers of talent and leadership roles in, financial, in the financial services industry. Finally, Melody Hobson and Ariel, you know, who's been with us 31 years, she's become a Pied Piper for talent for us. More and more, I run into young women all the time who say they saw Melody on television, they heard about her, and they said they wanted to have a financial services career because there was a model they could look up to. John, I so appreciate you sharing the importance of role models. You know, as you and I have talked about in a number of our one-on-ones and our coaching and mentorship sessions in the past, at Scholars of Finance, we believe in the power of mentorship. And really our mission here is, you know, to give you a platform, to give Melody a platform. Um, even on this podcast, we had Mandel Crawley, who's on the operating committee at Morgan Stanley on, incredibly dynamic African-American leader, Ray Cameron, who's a managing director at BlackRock on the podcast in the past. And I think your leadership, your role modeling is so instrumental. And we've heard that from our students as well. A lot of the podcast episodes where we have African-American leaders come on, um, we actually get commentary from our African-American, our BIPOC students about how inspiring it is. So I just want to plus one that and just say thank you, right, for being a role model and a leader and encouraging others to do the same. On that same note, I want to shift a little bit. You've talked before about how Black employees tend to accumulate less on their 401k plans and how this is something that corporations should address. Can you elaborate on that problem and some of the possible solutions you see? Well, it really is a problem. When Ariel started doing a survey with Charles Schwab on this really vitally important issue, we found data that implied that typically African-Americans of the same income level and job description would have often 60% save relative to white Americans in their 401k plans. So for every $100 white Americans had in the 401k, African-Americans will often have $60 or less. And uh, we would often, when we got into, sometimes we'd be late to join a 401k plan. If we got involved, we'd be often too conservative uh, with our investment choices. Often we would have to take hardship withdrawals or loans to help extended family. So all these things impacted our ability to compound money and grow assets in a similar way. And of course, it all comes down to the multi-generational impacts of the, you know, being formally enslaved here to the Jim Crow laws, to the housing discrimination and segregation we see in, in so many communities, the opportunity to create multi-generational wealth just hasn't been there for our, our community. So we haven't had often the grandfather or the father or someone to show us the way and get us comfortable in the markets. We didn't have a chance to, again, accumulate, accumulate wealth that could be invested in, in the markets and give you confidence. So since you, if, you know, if you didn't have grandparents with wealth and aunts and uncles with wealth, you didn't learn a lot about wealth management growing up. And so therefore, when you get into that 401k plan, you're just going to be less comfortable. You know, you're not going to have someone to be able to talk to you about, have gotten you confident in the long run of being engaged in the stock market. So too often, African-Americans, when they do save, are putting money into insurance products or into just into homes and not thinking about the equity markets, which we know is such a powerful place to create real multi-generational wealth. That's such an interesting point. And I was going to share this with you another time, but we actually just launched a partnership at Scholars of Finance with an organization called First Generation Investors that bring college students together with high school students in underserved communities to teach them personal financial literacy and investing. 
So maybe at some point, John, we'll have to have you speak to the the FGI high school students as well uh, via that partnership so they can get the process started as early as possible. Following up on the three-pronged answer that you had provided earlier, you know, regarding closing the racial wealth gap, how can firms contribute to correcting the lack of diversity and, and developing more professionals and leaders from minority backgrounds in finance? First and foremost, you have to have someone there who is um, in a leadership role. Just have that Jackie Robinson, you know, you mentioned Morgan Stanley, and it's great when you have someone like that who can be the role model for others within the company and others outside the company. I always tell this quick story. My mom used to be on the board of Equitable Life Insurance, and they had two African-Americans that were in the senior levels of Equitable. And it was Frank Savage and and, uh, Darwin Davis. I still remember their names. And every time you went to a black enterprise, golf and tennis outing, every time you went to an urban league dinner, any time you went to a rainbow push event, they were there representing the equitable, letting people know that the equitable was open to bringing in more and more diverse talent. So you need to have, again, those Pied Pipers in the leadership roles who are not only all respected within the company itself, the financial services firm, but are comfortable and accepted and respected throughout the black community throughout the country. And then when you bring in people, and sometimes people are starting to think they're not comfortable, they're thinking about leaving, and you have senior people at the highest roles, they'll keep those talented people there. And they'll be able to make them, you know, maybe get through some tough periods as they're developing their careers and moving up in, within an organization. So I just think, I can't overemphasize how important it is to have those people, a couple, one or two or three, and starting at the top, I think is uh it can be done. The second thing, as we talked about earlier, partnering with urban public schools to build a pipeline of talent. I think that is that is so critical. And then finally, I would say, often white male CEO has got to make it comfortable for their developing minority talent to let them know that they can be themselves, they can say what they think, they can challenge the authority that's there and, and bring up whatever problems or stumbling blocks there are within that organization of having African-Americans move up to the top. Because often you have someone who's an executive at a company who's not comfortable talking about these uncomfortable issues. So you need people who are going to be comfortable, but at the same time, you need sometimes that white leader to make sure that they open up the door and create the atmosphere that welcomes that kind of uncomfortable conversation. I find that advice personally incredibly helpful. You know, I'm a white male CEO and we actually at Scholars of Finance, John, I'm so proud to share this. We just announced it on LinkedIn. Um, We hired our first African-American leader on our team at Scholars of Finance, Randall. She's incredibly impressive. She was a Gates Millennium Scholar, um, lives in Atlanta, um, is our director of program development. And I'll admit, you know, publicly, I, I found myself wondering, you know, okay, I want to make sure I don't say the wrong thing here. I want to make sure I create a comfortable environment. And so on behalf of all the white male CEOs or leaders listening, I'll just say myself, um, your advice is incredibly helpful. And I, I appreciate you encouraging us and really, you know, inviting us to, to do that. And um, I'm going to myself take that away as an action item to make sure that I do those exact things with her on our team and, and future African-American leaders that we hire. So thank you so much for sharing that sort of pivots. I think Um, we'd love to do a rapid fire round. I have three questions. I'll throw up my question. Give me all the hard hitting advice that you possibly can for our students and our investors listening. Does that sound good? 
Sure. All right. First question um, for students that may also want to start their own firms one day. We have a lot of students who dream of being a fund manager one day themselves. How can maximize their chances for success? I think one of the things you can do is as you're coming along, develop great friendships with the people that you think are really good at what they do and have a shared interest in the financial service industry, whether it's high school or college or business school or what have you. And those folks can be your partners co-leaders as you build out your own firm. You know, I started my firm with a, a lab a person, the University of Chicago Lab School that I'd gone to high school with. We were great friends and having that kind of a deputy was important. Uh, my vice chairman, Charlie Bobrinsko, I went, to, I went to high school with him. So you're building a relationship with people who can be your future partners. A lot of my early high school friends were also early investors in Ariel when I was raising friends and family capital. So I would tell young people, stay close to the people that you're growing up with, build that trust, and they can be ultimately your partner as you're building a business. Thanks, John. I'll move on to my second question. As I've mentioned before, you are an incredible civic leader. In fact, in 2008, you were awarded Princeton University's highest honor, the Woodrow Wilson Award, presented annually to the alumnus or alumna with a strong commitment throughout their careers to national service. What advice would you give to students and early career finance professionals and investors that want to follow in your footsteps as a purpose-driven leader in finance? Well, I think a couple of things, if you're interested in being a purpose leader, that I think worked for, for me, um, you know, I got very involved in Princeton right away and volunteered and, and, and got engaged with what they call the schools committee, helping to recruit minority students and, and, and students here in Chicago to Princeton. So I, I tell folks, if you want to get civically involved, have a purpose, your alma mater is a good place to start. I keep my eyes and ears open for up and coming politicians that share your values, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, liberal, liberal or conservative. I find getting involved in, in the political process is a great way to make a difference in our society. And I've loved working for Carol Mosley Braun and when she became United States Senator, Rich Daly became mayor of Chicago, or of course, getting to co-chair Barack Obama's inauguration and Illinois Finance Committee working hard. You wouldn't know these guys, former Senator Bill Bradley, when he ran for president, and Melody Hobson and I got very involved. So get involved politically, get engaged in that way. You can really make a difference. And then finally, I always say, find a nonprofit that you believe in that has shared values and get involved early. Maybe you're a junior board member, and then you move up to the full board. You know, my daughter's on the board of the Brooklyn Museum, and she just loves it because she loves the art world. And it's a way for her to get engaged and involved and and so I, I encouraged her and that's worked out for her. And so that's still the same to all young people listening. Thanks, John. And what you just said segues into my final question about getting involved in nonprofits you believe in. You have been very involved with Scholars of Finance. You've been incredibly generous with your time with us. From being our first speaker at UChicago, our first new chapter we ever launched, um, speaking at a number of events in the Chicago area. You've been coaching and mentoring me for the last couple of years since I became a CEO founder myself. And I know how busy you are and want to ask, what stood out to you about Scholars of Finance and our mission? You know, Why have you gotten so involved and why would you encourage others uh, to get involved as well? Well, I think in, you, know, you wouldn't be surprised for me to say this, but I, I think that you know, leadership really matters. And the amount of passion and energy that you bring to this such you know this important endeavor, I think uh, has you know inspired me to want to be involved and try to help out in any way that I can. 
And so I, I just can't overemphasize how important your leadership has been in inspiring me to, to be involved and engaged. And I do think that, as I've said several times, I was so lucky to have young people, you know, when I was a young person having mentors that took care of me, not only was it my dad helping and then my first stockbroker, but it was people like Professor Bert Malkiel, the head of the economics department at Princeton, who wrote the legendary book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. You know, you have these people who are looking out for you and making a difference in your life. So I've always felt that that's important to give back in a similar way. Coach Carrill, my coach at Princeton, always said, you want to be a good teammate. So I've tried to be a good teammate to those that care deeply about financial literacy and financial opportunity uh, for disadvantaged youth. Thank you so much, John. I know we're at the bottom of the hour here. Thank you for the time today. Um, would love to have you back on the podcast again in the future. I'm, we have a thousand more questions we'd love to ask that I'm sure our, our students and investor, investors would love to hear. Um, just want to thank you again. Hope you have an amazing rest of your week. You know, good luck out there to you and the firm in the in the market environment. And uh, can't wait till the next time we connect. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the interview. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.